Your Bible should fall open to Ephesians chapter 4 by now. That's a good place to fall open to. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read through a few of the verses and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about today. Paul writes these words, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We've talked about that before. Notice he doesn't say that you walk in worthy so that you receive a calling. But we've all been called. There's a calling upon every one of your life. We use that expression so much for ministers. Well, that guy was, that person, man, woman was called into the ministry. You've all been called. That's how you got into the body of Christ to begin with. You were called in it. None of us were smart enough to come. The Bible says no one comes unless he draws us, calls us. So you've got a calling upon your life. You were called, and what Paul is doing is challenging and challenging us at Faith Christian Center today that we walk worthy of the calling with which we've already been called. And this is how he directs us to do that, with all lowliness, which is humility, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, so we're all part of one thing, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. When you go down to verse 11, he tells you what those gifts are. And he gave some of these gifts as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And these gifts are given to the church for the purpose in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, so that the saints, and the saints are all of us, so that we can do the work of the ministry. Some translations say service. So the ministry is the work of the body of all of us. That's our calling. That's our purpose, is to do the work of service. For the edifying, and who are we serving? We're serving him to edify or build up, that word means, the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or mature man. And the standard by which we are to grow up into is the, literally the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is, what it, this is one of the signs when you can tell you're getting there, that we're no longer children tossed about to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. In other words, there's stability. We're not blown around by everything we hear. We're not moved so easily by everything that we hear. We spent uh, most of Friday with a pastor, a friend of ours, who'd come down from, from Albany, New York, someone we've met uh, at Lafayette Scales meetings and had a, developed a relationship. And they just wanted to come down and visit with us and, and see the work that God's done here. And they're a much smaller church, an inner city church. And just it, it was inspiring to them not to see what we've done, but to see what God has done here. And what God will do here, he's no respecter of persons. It doesn't mean every church has to have the same size, that every church has to have blue chairs, that every church has to be on television. But the point is this work is a work of God's grace. And that's God's grace, and so it was, it was encouraging to them. So we spent, we spent the day with them, and I've forgotten what the purpose of my story was. <laughs> It was a good purpose. <laughs> it was a great point. Sometimes I get so far afield in my leading up to it, I forgot where we're going to with it. <clears throat> oh, tossed about and carried about by every wind of doctrine. What we're sharing with him about, <clears throat> one of the things the Bible says is one of the signs of the end times is that people will be very easily led astray. 
And so it's so important that we grow and mature in certain things, and that's one of the reasons for this study. And we talked about this at a point for quite a bit of while. Last year, we talked about learning to walk in the light, walk in truth. Because the, what's the truth and what's the error, the line between truth and error is going to become very blurred. A lot of things that we always thought were right and, clearly right and wrong, our society doesn't see as right and wrong. There's a whole generation that's being raised without any regard to right or wrong. It's whatever you want to do. Why is there such a thing as right or wrong? It's, I'm, I'm the ma- captain of my own fate. I'm the master of my own soul. I can, you know, I'm in charge of myself. So don't get in my way. I'm in charge of my life. So what's right is what I think is right, what feels good for me. So we have young people out there deciding what's right without having any clue of what's involved in that. And we're raising generations of people that have no sense of what's right or wrong. And people wonder, well, how can these terrible crimes take place? It's not a great mystery when you take out any sense of right and wrong, and then they do things which you think are wrong, and then you're, we're shocked because people are doing things that we think are wrong. And we know, how can they do that? Because we've taught them that there is no right or wrong. It's whatever you want. They just happen to want to kill that person or set that kid on fire. So why, why should I not be able to do that? It's what I wanted to do. And we're living in an age when the difference between right and wrong is very blurry. It's one thing for that to be so in the world. It's another thing when that's so in the church. When the same philosophy, the same method of thinking creeps into the church. It's not creeping and it's flooding in. And the Bible says that one of the signs of the last days is that many will fall away. It's very sobering verses. And become easily deceived. And why were they deceived? Because they were people that did not learn to walk by revelation, by walk by the Spirit. So much of the church is so carnal, we walk by what we see. So if the, if the Red Sox win, we're happy. <laughs> Everything's good. If, if, you know, if, 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 I, if my job's going well and, and there's plenty of money in my bank account, then, then everything's great, I'm happy, I come to church, I worship God. But I get a pink slip and my job's lost and I have nothing else to fall back upon except the government who's providing for me for six months or so. And then that begins to run out and my world falls apart. Then that's what my world was based on. So much of the church has grown to walk by what we see and what we hear and what we feel. And Paul calls us when we do that as carnal or fleshly. The Bible says we're to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We're to learn to grow by revelation. A greater and greater revelation of who God is. God is my source. God is my source. Not my job. Not my family, not the government. God is my source. God is my source. God is my source. God is my source. There's a prophet that says at the end, of, if everything should fall away, if the vines burn up and they stop producing fruit, if, if, if everything dries up, I'm still going to praise my God because he is my source. And so we need to learn to walk. See, one of the signs of immaturity is that we're moved so easily by things that come along and what people say and the latest fad and what so-and-so said on Christian television. And it's like, oh, I heard so-and-so said this or there's a meeting over there and i got to run over there and hear what they're saying here and run back over there and hear what they were saying over here. When we were in Bible school, and I've shared this with you before, we were, we were in, in, in Tulsa, which was a, at the time a spiritual Disneyland. 
I mean, it was just, you know, every major speaker that we looked up to and listened to came through town at some point, and they were in this church, and we were in school, and somebody says, you know who's preaching Sunday night over here? And they'd all flock over there. Well, we went to our church Sunday night because we believed God had planted us in a church. And although Brother Doodad was over there, you know, with his prophetic message, we were where God had assigned us because that's where we're supposed to grow, planted to grow and also to serve. And out of that, I believe God helped to develop some level of maturity by, as we did that. But I would watch these, these other students around us just run to the latest speaker that was in town to hear what they had to say. And as a result, they were never rooted and they didn't grow and mature. And many of them missed their calling. They stayed there listening to Brother Doodad or whoever came through town. And so the, one of the signs of maturing and growing is that we're not easily tossed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the deceitful trickery of men. Verse 14, but 15, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by that which every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is part of the preparation for growing up is recognizing who we are. And we saw that Paul spends the first chapter, really first two chapters of this book, talking about who you are in Christ. When you come to Christ, who you are, who God made you to be, what he's done for you. And then we begin to talk about, well, it's not only enough to recognize who I am individually, I've also got to begin to recognize what I'm part of. And we saw in the beginning of this chapter, Paul says there's one body, just one body. And that most of us have an image, and especially in the church in the United States and and other parts of the world, we have an image that what binds us together is we belong to the same church. And there's, a, there's, there's nothing wrong with having, a, you know, a sense of, 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 of the right kind of pride or a sense of, of you know, belonging to, to a church such as Faith Christian Center and being, you know, glad that we're here and glad of what God does for us here. But that's not who we are. We're members of the body of Christ. That's our identity. Okay. And we're individually members of it, but there's one body, and that's what we've been talking about. And we've, God is trying to get us to see, and it takes a while to do this, which is why we're spending so much time on it, to get us to recognize that we not only belong to him, but we belong to each other. Okay. Not, not because we go to the same church. Not just because we're Christians. We are literally part of his body. And individually, you are a particular member of his body. And we see that Paul says here, and that every joint, and you're a joint, supply some function. And what joints do is joint connect one part to another part. My elbow is a joint. So it connects my forearm to my biceps or whatever part of my arm this is. So without my elbow or if it's not functioning, and you can get a situation if you've injured your elbow and you don't use it where it begins to freeze up on you. Not cold, but it locks up on you and you can't exercise it. And now, guess what? Although these parts are connected together, they can't function because they need each other to function and they need something to hold them together. And you are one of those parts in the body of Christ. So we spent time looking at that. And then last week we looked at what he says here. I'll go back and take a a quick look at this again because it's important. Not only we need to recognize that we are part of one another because we're part of one body, but that body has another part 
Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And we went back over a number of scriptures last week and established for you that although we're the body, the church is his body, and there's only one body, he's the head. And we talked about what a head does. The difference between a head and the rest of the body is every part of the body from the neck on down and even parts that are in the head are all designed to carry out what the head decides to do. Your body brought you here today, functioned in unity and cooperated together to bring you here this morning because your head decided to come to church. Your body carries out the will of the head. And Christ is the head of the body. So all of us exist. All of us have been brought together. You've been assigned to be connected to a particular part of his body so that you can help participate in carrying out his will. Not only that, that when we're joined to Christ, we lose our identity. We lose our own individual identity. Oh, yes, you're still Jane and Fred and whatever your name is. And he doesn't take it away from you. But your real identity is you are part of his body. That's who we are. And the reason that's so important is that it affects how we relate to him and it affects how we relate to one another. So that's what we went over and established last week. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at a little side part of that. So if you turn with me to John chapter 15, we're going to talk about the relationship of the head with the different parts of the body. John chapter 15. Very famous chapter. Now, I believe the background here, that doesn't say it anywhere, but Jesus has finished sharing with them what we call the Last Supper. And and he has celebrated with them the the Seder, the Passover meal, which is the last Passover they would celebrate, but it's also the first communion meal, which we're going to celebrate today to remember that. And, And as he does finishes that, they go out. They're on their way now, out of the Jerusalem. And I believe they're walking at the, this point, it just fits in. They're walking through the garden, through the, through the Kidron Valley and up into the garden where there's, it's full of vines. Now, a vine in the Middle East is not like the vine that's growing up the side of your house. It's not ivy growing up. It's a tree with many different stalks in the middle of it, and it, it would grow outward. It's a very wide tree. Ugly from the pictures I've seen. But it produces, it produces olives, which were essential for, for, their, for their diet and for, for, for other things. And so, uh, so he's walking through these, and he's going to use these as an example for the principle he's teaching. So keep that in mind. So I believe he's walking past some of these vines, which again are like trees, and he stops and points to them and says, it's like saying, see that vine? I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, another meaning of that is to lift up. One of the other meanings of that Greek phrase is to not pull out, but to lift up or support or strengthen. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Some of you may feel like you're being pruned right now, cut back. But that's so that you can bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. That word means remain or live in or settle down in. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now let's talk for a moment about the word, what the word abide means. It's the Greek word neno, which literally means to remain in. But let me ask you a question. Let's bring it down to where we, literally where we live. Do you abide somewhere? It's okay to answer. Do you abide somewhere? I hope you do. I hope you're not homeless. So you have a place you abide. We call it our home. We abide in our house. Now, what does it mean to abide there? It's the place where we live, where we spend most of our time. We may go out and do other things, but we always come back to our home. It's the place we rest in. It's the place, it's our main base. So we're always aware of where it is. And so when we're finished what we're doing, we come back to that and settle down in it. We rest in it. It's a place of refuge. We had a busy day yet. We're out doing a bunch of errands and things like that. And I can't wait. Let's get, I need to get home. So we just go home just to walk in the door. It's like, we're home. It's a place of shelter. So when the winds are blowing and the rains are coming down and the snow's coming down or whatever weather's like that's, that's adverse, we want to get into the house. We want to get into our home because we feel comfortable and we should feel comfortable and at ease and, and cozy in our home. That's what it means to abide. And what he's saying is we need to learn to abide in him. He's our place of refuge. He's a place of comfort. You may get out in a busy day and you may be busy doing things, but you always have in the back of your mind, when I'm finished this, I want to get home. I want to get back in, I want to get back in connection with him. I want to know where he is. He's my refuge. He's my place of rest. He's my place of shelter. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall dwell in the shelter of the Almighty. He is your place of refuge. He is your place of peace. He is your place of provision. If you can just take in the, what you happens with your home in the natural and re- look at that in the spiritual, that's what he is and that's what it means to re- abide or dwell in. So he's saying to them this principle. Now understand, this is at the end of three years, of three and a half years of training them. So these are the last instructions that he's giving them. So to me, they're the most important things he tells them. So he's saying, abide in me. Unless unless the the branch abides in the vine, it cannot produce fruit, and neither can you. So you cannot produce any fruit for him unless you're abiding in him. You cannot produce any fruit for him unless you're abiding in him. And then he goes on with this principle. I am the vine... And you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Notice he doesn't say, while you're abiding in me, make sure you will bear fruit. I'll say that again because this is a subtle point. Notice he does not say, once you're connected to me and are abiding in me, now that's the next thing to do is make sure you bear fruit. Because what he understands is this. When the vine, when the branch is connected to the vine, it will produce fruit. So much of what we do, and I don't want to get off here, I don't mean it's off track, but I mean distracted here. 
is we spend so much of our Christian walk trying to produce fruit. You're looking at the wrong end of the branch. We're the branch. His instructions are not, you're a bunch of branches out there. Make sure you produce fruit. If you produce enough fruit, then I'll connect you to me, to the vine. What he says is, make sure you're connected to me. You're dwelling in me. You're in a living, vital relationship with me. Because as long as you're in that living, vital relationship with me, what does the vine do? The vine supplies the sap. It supplies the life. It flows out of the ground. It flows up through the, the, the branch. It flows up through the trunk. It flows out through the branch. And the life, the sap, the life of that tree flowing out of the branch produces the fruit. We start straining and judging ourselves because we're comparing our fruit with someone else's fruit and we're looking at the end of our lives. We're looking to the fruit end instead of where we're abiding. His instructions are, don't produce fruit, abide in me. If you abide in me, I'll produce the fruit through you. I was just free. But here's the key. Here's what I want you to see. Remember what we're studying, that we are the body of Christ, and he's using this tree, this vine, as a symbol of the principle he's teaching them about his body. You literally are his body. But the vine is a figure. It's a symbol of something. And what he's saying here is you are part of that vine, of that tree. My father is the, is, the, is, the, is the gardener. He tends it. And I am the centerpiece of it. I am the vine. But you are part of me. And as part of me, as long as you remain connected to me and are part of me, you will produce, I will produce fruit through you. But notice the next thing he says in this verse. For without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember, we ended last week in Matthew chapter 7. We talked about those verses, which to me were always kind of troublesome, where Jesus talks about fruit, and he says you can tell them by their fruit. A good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. Then he says these strange things. He says, in that day, many of you will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, call me Lord, Lord. And say, did I not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many wonderful works? And he said, I'm going to say to them on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. And we ended by saying, remember the body exists and functions for the purpose of carrying out the will and the plans of the head. And he is the head of the body. And what he's saying in there is just because you say you belong to the body doesn't mean you are part of the body. The evidence of it is that you dwell in me. Not what you, the fruit that you produce. 
We talked about the fact that, well, how can somebody produce fruit if they're not vitally connected to him? And we said, well, signs and wonders, the devil can do signs and wonders to some degree. We talked about when Moses came to Pharaoh. And the first several miracles that God had Moses do, Pharaoh's magicians duplicated them. We said the Bible says that that Satan can appear as an angel of light. That's why we need discernment. So the fact that somebody does mighty signs and wonders does not necessarily mean that that's the fruit that he's produced in them. The sign that they belong to him is that they don't practice lawlessness, which means they're operating under their own authority and not under his. And that's where we ended last week. Now we see that same principle here that Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's saying, apart from me, if you're not living in relationship with me, then apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, you can do all kinds of things, but they're nothing in terms of contributing to what I'm doing. And here's what we're going to talk about today. The challenge, I believe, for the church is for us to see not so much him as Lord, although that's a challenge for some, but to see that together we belong to each other because we're parts of his same body. It affects how we relate to one another, how we relate with each other. And here's the problem. This is what the Lord dropped in my heart the other day. He said, when people see themselves as separate parts... So when we come in here and our image of ourselves is that we, you know, I belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. I don't really need all of you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, the problem is if I see myself as separate from the body, then since the body's connected to the head, that means I'm also separate from him. I'm going to say that again. So here's the issue that I believe God is calling us to. That we begin to get a clear sense of how we belong to one another. That we literally are His body. And here at Faith Christian Center, that we are the portion of His body that He has assigned here at Faith Christian Center. And every one of, every one of you is a part of that, a functioning, is called to be a functioning part of that body. And you are to supply something that no one else can supply. So that we're not truly a fully healthy and functioning portion of his body if we're not all performing what we were called to do. So we have to begin to see ourselves when we come in here on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights as we're not just coming to something that we all belong to, but we all belong to each other and together we're coming here. And the sign of that is when needs begin to develop The instinct is, just as your physical body takes care of the different parts' needs, we've talked about stubbing your toe. And all of your body is on alert to help that toe that's hurting right now. The same is true in the body of Christ. But here's the issue the Lord showed me this week. He said, the problem is when somebody sees themselves as separate, I don't need to belong because I've got my relationship with the Lord. You cannot be separate from his body, and connected to the head. You cannot function separate from the body and function connected to the head. I'm not talking about whether you're saved or not. I'm talking, we're, not, we're beyond that. We're talking about functioning together with him. 
And here Jesus says that. If you're a branch and you're not vitally connected to me, part of the whole tree, then you can do nothing. You can do all kinds of activities, but it doesn't count as anything because I didn't produce it through you. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 15. Now this is a this is a, 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 a the God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel to Israel, but the principle is what, the same that we're talking about. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it from the vine to make any object." Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? What he's saying there is he says, the wood of a vine is useless for any purpose other than its connection to the vine and the fruit it produces. In other words, if you cut down, if you cut down an oak tree, you can make a nice oak table out of that. You can, you can sand it down and polish it and make a beautiful oak table or maple, or some other wood, tree, you can make into furniture, or even make a simple peg to hang your hat on. But he said, because of the way the vine is gnarled and it's twisted, he said, it, the piece of wood, a branch of a vine, has no value unless it's part of the vine and producing fruit. You can't take, cut off a part of a vine, a branch of a vine, and just make it into anything else useful other than as firewood. So Jesus has chosen the example of that particular tree for a purpose because no piece of a vine has any value in and of itself unless it's connected to the the trunk and the trunk is producing fruit through it. So what Ezekiel is saying, God is saying through Ezekiel is the only value that a piece of vine has apart from functioning as a whole is to be thrown in the fire and burned up for heat. And the only value that we have to God is when we're working in relationship with one another in the place that God has assigned us to. Turn with me to Proverbs 18. Verse 1. A man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, and rages against all wise judgment or sound wisdom. When we isolate ourselves, when we see ourselves as separate individuals, 
who come to church, do what we want to do. Basically what it says is it's selfish. To isolate yourself, a man who isolates himself seeks his own, oh, seeks his own desire, not the Lord's desire. A man who separates himself, and you can sit in church and separate yourself. And I'm not talking about the blue chairs that are between you. We've already gone over that before. But a man who isolates himself, seeks himself, sets himself to do what he wants to do, lives for his own purposes, seeks his own desire, not the desire of the head. Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. And this is important to grasp because we have the illusion out there that I can serve Christ. I can, I can worship him. I can do his will, but I can kind of do it on my own. And look at this verse. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. I didn't say that. John said that. The other John. <laughs> he is a liar for he does not love his for for he who does not love his brother. Notice how he defines hate. So it's not just that you want to take your brother's head off. He says for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can he love God? whom he has not seen. In other words, there's a direct parallel between the way you love God and the way we love one another. See, we can think we're someplace and fool ourselves. This is why one of the reasons God has designed this this way, and we've talked about this before in different contexts. I remember years ago when I was in the ministry before and we lived out in the country, we were on a running a place that had I know, 20 acres of land. and I was one, It was a Monday morning, and I had a wonderful services on Sunday and Sunday night, and I was just out in the woods just having this wonderful time with God and just fellowshipping with Him. It was just oh, it was so wonderful. Now, things were a little tense back home. I don't remember what the issue was, but, you know, I think I was... I don't remember what it was. It was so long ago. But I remember one of the reasons I was out there was because I may have not been the nicest that morning to my wife I could have been. I don't remember what it was because I remember what God talked to me about, though. I'm out there having this wonderful time with him. Oh, God. Yesterday morning was wonderful. The anointing was there. Last night was wonderful. People got saved. Beautiful day. Oh, Lord, I just love being with you. I love you so much. And he spoke to me and said, Son, the real measure of your love for me is the way you love her. And I saw what he was trying to get across to me. I can stand out there and say, oh, God, I love you. I give my life for you. Peter told him that thing, those things. I'd give my life for you. Oh, Lord, I love you. 
but I can't see his face. I can, you know, oh, and God, he's, t- oh, and I, I felt God's love out there so much. It may have been God's love. It may have been the coffee I had. It may have been the warm sunshine. Because I wanted to feel that way. I wanted to feel that way, and what you want is very, you're very open to. And what the Lord was saying, yes, son, but it's the real evidence of your spiritual openness to me and love for me is the way you're loving the woman that you can see. Because you can tell whether she's happy with you or not. You can tell whether you're loving her and you're open to her and you're sensitive to her by how she's responding to that. And, because, and, and you cannot do that with her. You cannot, be, you cannot be cold to her and warm to me because you're either open or you're closed. And then he brought me to this verse because I wanted scripture for it. How can you love God whom you say you love God whom you can't see when you don't love your brother whom you do see? So God measures our love for him by the relationship that we have with one another. Why? First of all, he told us to. So if I tell God I love you, but I'm violating his number one commandment, then how can I say I love him when I'm basically saying I love you, but I don't want to do what you say? It's kind of like the guy that says, you're Lord, Lord, and I did all these wonderful things in your name. And he says, but I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. You did what you want to do, not what I told you to do. I want to read something to you. I don't do this very often. I want to read this out of a book um, because I want to, but it describes something so much what we're talking about. And, and this, is, this is a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And I referred to this a few weeks ago when he talks about, I guess it was on a Wednesday night, when he talks about uh, the difference between spiritual reality and natural reality. And I'm not saying this is what heaven's like. This, this, the great divorce is referring to this great separation between heaven and hell. And the story is of it starts in a village or a town, a city actually, and this man is getting on a bus and he has these conversations with different people on the bus and the bus begins to lift out of this town and head up and he runs into these different characters who are, and, and it becomes clear as the story progresses that the bus is taking people from hell to visit heaven to decide where they want to stay there. Well, we know that's not how it works. You don't get a chance to stay there. But his point in the story is people, people already have said in their hearts, what you, a sinner would not be happy in heaven. This is his point. Because it, you can't do what you want to do. So what we're going to see here is there's, he's, he becomes aware that the city that he's left is actually hell. Now, when we describe this, I'm not telling you this is what hell's like, but there's a particular aspect of this I want you to listen to because it says it so much better than I could describe it to you. He's talking to somebody in the bus, and he says, It seems like a wonderful town, I volunteered. And that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a large population? Not at all, said my neighbor, a neighbor on the bus. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives here, he settles into some street. And before he's been here there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. And before the week over is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. 
Very likely he finds the next street empty because all the people that have quarreled with their neighbors neighbors have also moved. And so he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You only have to think a house, and there it is. And that's how the town keeps growing. Leaving more and more empty streets, I asked. That's right. A time sort of odd here. The place where we caught the bus is thousands of miles from the center where all the newcomers arrive from Earth. All the people you've met were living near the bus stop, but they'd taken centuries of our time to get there by gradual removals. There's something else in here I wanted to read to you. So the point here is this. What he's saying, and I'm not saying that that's what hell is like. What he's saying is that in a a place where you can do whatever you want, when people run into somebody they disagree with, what do they want to do? Get away from them. Not work it out. I want to go where I'm comfortable. So although I had this fight with Phyllis today, I don't have to live next to Phyllis because I can go to the next street and just imagine my own house. So there's nothing that makes me work things out. There's nothing holding us together because I can do what I want. And that's the definition of lawlessness. I can do what I want. Don't tell me what to do. I can do what I want. And what he's saying is hell, and I'm not saying this what the scriptures say, but the description of hell he's giving is a place where people that can do whatever they want get to live together except because they can do whatever they want and they don't have to take care of each other. They don't have to, to identify with each other. They move away from each other. And he says, well, you know, are there any famous people here? Oh, he says, yeah, we got Napoleon, but he's millions of miles away. They just keep moving further away. So if I can't get along with you, if you do something that offends me, I just move. Because there's nothing that makes it difficult to move away because there's nothing holding us together. So I do what's human nature, which is I avoid the conflict, I avoid challenge, I avoid having to work things out, and so I just move somewhere else. Doesn't that describe marriage in the world today? We talked several weeks ago about this idea of of being one, that this is God's idea, it's a covenant relationship. And we went back and saw how God created that first marriage, that first man who was one. He divided into two individuals with two separate, separate views and two separate uh, personalities now. And he said, now function together as one. And that's what marriage is like. You take two people, as I've described to you, are very different backgrounds. She came from a small family with two girls, which everything was prim and proper. I came from a house of chaos with five boys with animals all over the place, snakes and rabbits and raccoons. and I mean, some of those living in the house. My brother raised pythons, boa constrictors. We had an armadillo in the house. It was an interesting household to grow up in. It was an even more interesting household for her to visit. So we had very different backgrounds, very different ways of seeing things. 
And now God brings us together and make us one. And we find out not too long down the road there are differences. We don't agree sometimes on what we see or how to do things. So how do we handle that? Well, that gets awkward. It gets difficult. It can be challenging. Very challenging sometimes. And then children come along and you've got to raise the children. And you see, you see, you, often men and women see that role differently. Fathers think we need to toughen them up. because We know what they're going to face when they get out in the world. And mothers want to comfort them and hold them and, and they, you know, shelter them and so they, they, they don't go through any things that are uncomfortable. That can create conflict. And God designed it that way so that we'd have to learn to work it out in relationship together. But what C.S. Lewis is saying is when you don't have to do that, when you're left to your own devices, human nature is, see ya. This is uncomfortable for me, and nothing's holding them back so I can go anywhere I want and do whatever I want. I don't want to be near you. I want to go, I want to live by myself. Because the one I get along with the best is me. My own remote control, my own TV, my own newspaper. That's human nature apart from Christ. It's selfish. And, we, and even in that selfishness, we want to be around other people for what we get out of it. So when we're no longer getting out of it what we want, we want someone else or something else. But it's only the nature of God and the love of God that's birthed in us that changes us. So that we'll do things where we'll sacrifice our own interests for the sake of our spouse. And do what they need, even though it's not comfortable for us, or even we're getting anything back out of it. But isn't that his nature? Amen. Isn't that what he did? Yes. You understand that when he came here, was nailed to the cross, and then was raised from the dead, all it did is put him back where he started out. Ever think of that? He gets back in heaven where he started out. He's not in an improved position. Why did he do that? He didn't do it for himself. He did it because because he did that, he brought you and me along with him. For God so loved the world that he gave. And so when we're connected to him and when we're part of him and we're functioning in a vital relationship with one another, that nature that's in him, that sap that's in the vine, that life that's in the vine can begin to flow through us and out of us, but you're not the source of it. The source of it is he living in you. But that love can't flow out of us unless we're also living in that same relationship with one another. Because for me to see myself as separate from you, by definition means I'm separate from him because you're connected to him. 1 Corinthians 13, really talking about the fruit of the, spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Famous verses say, you know, if I, have lo- if, I have, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have love... It's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I give my body to be burned or have faith to remove all mountains, 
he basically says it counts nothing. I can do all those wonderful things. Imagine that. Have faith to move mountains. Everything you cry out in faith, God does. Wow. Just think how you'd feel. People be coming to you with all their needs and you just speak them out and they're taken care of like that. You've sacrificed everything, your body to be burned. You speak in beautiful tongues and the gifts of the Spirit flow through you. But if they're not motivated by love, by Him, by His life in you, they count as nothing. Why? Because He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the branch, from the tree, that vine is only good for firewood. You can't make anything useful of it in and of itself. So it's only by the relationship that it has with the vine and therefore with each other that it has any (coughs) eternal value to the kingdom of God. The same is true of your body. Take a part of your body that doesn't seem particularly useful to you. Your earlobe. You could live without your earlobe. Suppose you had it cut off. What's going to happen to it? It's going to die, isn't it? Why? Because it's separated from the body. Hebrews. Well, I'll close with that. I want to turn quickly because we don't have much time. <clears throat> and we may, we may end up picking up here later on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul had an understanding of this. And as such, he used that sense of separation as a way to discipline or correct people that couldn't be corrected any other way. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's dealing with a church there where there is somebody basically who's living with his stepmother. And Paul is upset at them. He says, you haven't dealt with this. You should have dealt with this situation. Chapter uh, 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people out of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who was sexually immoral or covetous or idolatry or reviler or drunk or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. You'll find also, he'll say this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, and in Romans 16, verse 7. He says, when you've got people in your body that are unruly, then basically, he says, shun them. Exclude them from your fellowship. And the principle is this. He wants to give them a sense in their natural senses of what it would mean to be separated from from Christ himself by separating them from fellowship with the body. So Paul is using that experience of somebody. What he's saying to the church is, you've got someone that will not listen to correction, that what I want you to do is exclude them from your natural fellowship with them in church. 
so that they will be isolated on their own and they will get a sense of what that's like to be separated from Christ. Then in 2 Corinthians, he warns them, he says, if you do this, now once that brother repents, make sure you bring them back in, lest they fall into despair and become, they become vulnerable to Satan. So use it only as a means for correction. This is where some of the churches got the concept of excommunication. The purpose of excommunication was, to, was to, for correction, to get across to somebody, this is the direction you're heading. If you don't stop it, this is what it's going to feel like, but it's going to be that way eternally. And he gives them a taste of what it means to not be part of the body but always with the idea of restoring and bringing back into fellowship once they've repented so that they may be protected because Paul and the Spirit of God through Paul sees that community of living together and of functioning together and of worshiping together and of of praying and taking care of one another is the living health of the body. So just as you took your earlobe or a part of your body and separated it, and by itself, it will die because the source of that life is the connection to the body and it flows through the body. And that's the example that the Spirit of God uses to communicate to us how we are to relate to one another and to Him. You cannot live separated from the body of Christ and joined to the head. In order to be truly joined to the head, you have to be joined to the body. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll close with this verse. You don't need to turn there. But I'll read it, how it's quoted to you. Hebrews chapter... Uh, it's not Hebrews chapter 10. Yeah, it is. Hebrew, I'll go. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. All of this is talking about communion with each other. Well, 24. Let us, consider, let us consider one another. Some translations say provoke one another in order to stir up or provoke love and good works. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Preachers use this so often to encourage people that they ought to be attending church. The purpose of the scripture is not to make sure that the building's full. The purpose of the scripture is a warning, especially as we get into the days that we're in today, to be careful to not be allowed to be pulled out of the body, assembling together. It's relating to one another. It's wonderful to be able to watch on television. We have a television program but I get concerned sometimes because I know they're shut-ins and that's the only, tele- only fellowship they have. But if you can be physically in a church, you need to find out where God's assigned you because it's not enough to sit there on a tele- and watch on television because you cannot develop relationship with other people in the potty. And there may be somebody sitting here today that God intended for you to be connected to, for his body to be healthy. I know there are people today that God had intended to be here because they need to be connected to somebody that's already here today and some function. And because they haven't seen that they're part of this body, 
It doesn't matter so much to them. I can handle this on my own. And here's the Spirit of God warning us as you get closer to His day approaching, and we're a whole lot closer today than we were then, make sure you do not forsake fellowshipping together, being together, understanding the relationship that we have with one another. Because apart from one another, He can do nothing in us. We can do all kinds of things ourselves, but the head can't do anything through us that He wants to do when we're living apart from one another. Because when we're separated from one another, we have to be separated from the head.